Take a network break, grab a virtual donut and join us for our weekly dash through tech news. We've got stories on Intel, Facebook and acquisition and more. This week's show is sponsored in part by Nokia. Did you know that Apple is using Nokia's data center fabric solution? If you want to know more and learn about Nokia SR Linux and the fabric services platform for yourself, check out nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. And just a quick note to remind you that on September 28th, the Packet Pushers are hosting a live stream with sponsor Glueware. Glueware gives you quick network automation wins, including monitoring, detecting config drifts, upgrading and patching OS at scale, enforcing configuration policy, and they can help you grow into a software-defined networking and infrastructure as code environment. It's a low-code tool that you can use to drag and drop to create functional automation. So if you want to find out more, hear from customers, we're also going to talk to Terry Slattery. Um, you may have heard of him uh, from NetCraftsman about what he's doing with customers in Glueware. Join us for our live stream event, September 28th, 2021, sponsor Glueware. And you can find out how to sign up at packetpushers.net slash live stream. Yeah, and we promise to try and make it not boring. That is, that's pretty equivocal, isn't it? We promise to try. <laughs> that's, a, that's an ironclad got, guarantee right there. Ironclad, there you go. That's There you go. That's a sales commitment right there. We <laughs> promise to try and make our products work. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty meaningless. Uh, we've put together a format for that event, which is uh, trying to make it less tedious than most. It's not one hour of people blabbing at you. It's uh, six, 10 minute segments. And then we literally switch from one to the other. So the idea is to have it in like shorter, much more interesting, much more viewable than normal. So, and we'll also be having some pre-recorded videos as well as talking heads. So it should be a bit of a cross between a demo and a talk and, and lots of small segments. So should be not as tedious as most uh, live streams as you would talk about today. That is our aim. That's what we've been working for and working hard with Glueware on it uh, to make it quick, informative and useful for you. So if you're interested in automation, uh, come join the live stream September 28th. Sign up at packetpushers.net slash live stream. Uh, other Packet Pushers stuff. If you like Network Break, we have a bunch of other podcasts like Day 2 Cloud with Ethan Banks and Ned Bellavance. They're talking all about making cloud operational. There's heavy networking, IPv6 buzz and full stack journey. You can find them all at packetpushers.net. And don't forget, we have a weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine, all about being a human in IT. You can sign up for that at packetpushers.net slash newsletter and see every single back issue on that page. Yeah, I, had a, I wrote a, a piece for that this week, which is not something I've managed to do all that often lately, but uh, basically highlighting that the problem in technology employment isn't so much that the juniors aren't yeah, are not available so that the the entry level or the lower level employees, but it's actually we're losing, I think, I have a sense, I'd like to know what you think, that a lot of senior staff are leaving the industry or quitting their jobs. And that actually has a much greater impact than a lack of people on the ground is when experienced executives actually start leaving the game because they want a change of life or maybe they're choosing early retirement or they're going to have a break that COVID's given them a sort of a chance to say, Maybe I don't want to go back to the work. That actually might have as much more impact um, and disruption to the normal flow of business than perhaps you might think. Yeah, so check that out. All right, enough talking about packet pressure. Let's jump into some news. Uh, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger has pledged to spend up to $95 billion to build out two new chip factories in Europe. The investment will be spread out over about 10 years. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the factory locations have not been identified. Yeah, so lots to question in this article. And the reason that I put it up here is because it makes a great title, doesn't it? 95 billion. Big number, Europe. big number. Big number, great headline. 95 billion, maybe, if the European government can help them and will subsidize them, they might spend up to 95 billion, but they're not guaranteeing anything in the short term. 
Did you read that? Did you just get all that? That sort of came out in between the lines that it's just yeah. sort of like a, a little bit of a tease, like, hey, if you wash uh, our hand, maybe with some tax breaks, maybe with some land grants, maybe with some help on, you know, pollution controls and that kind of thing, we'll promise to spend some money and put chips and jobs in your country. Yeah. So obviously that has to be seen in the backdrop of Intel's losing its dominant position. Obviously, TSMC is um, out competing them in terms of producing silicon, but Intel still has the ability to design silicon. Obviously, it's x86 CPUs and then the wide range of other silicon design that it does gives them a part of the business that, uh, and so you can't really compare Intel's manufacturing arm and TSMC's arm and then say the two companies are the same. They're not. Intel actually has a whole research and development and chip design arm. But as people are saying or highlighting is that TSMC shows that having the factories separate from the design is actually desirable. And that is that the business model of manufacturing chips is a process competitive advantage. So um, Intel tends to try and produce its chips and then charge a very high price up front for the first few that come off the production line. It spends a lot of years. But the what TSMC's business model is built around is the idea that you you want to get that uh, production line ramped up as quickly as possible. And the best way to ramp up a production line is to actually get chips pumping through it. And you spend a lot of money up front, but you make your money down the back end when your process uh, yields have actually climbed from 5% to 20% to 40% over time, right? And Intel's still stuck in a very sort of the analysts are sort of saying that Intel's stuck in an obsolete business model where it charges a premium, you know, it expects to charge a premium for the first generation of products, but that's not how the business works. It's not like Apple charges a premium for the iPhone in the first month and then discounts it throughout the year. What they need is to make a mass production run and they make it up in scale. And so for Intel to say, oh, we're kind of thinking about putting some fabs in Europe, but this really feels like a some geopolitics. Intel wants to the, give the EU to an engage and it wins whether the EU gauges or not. That is, if they don't engage, they can say, hey, we tried to engage you, but you wouldn't, you know, mm-hmm. wouldn't party with us. And if they do, they might get some free money or subsidies or grants, and then it becomes a thing, right? So uh, uh, obviously the other part about it is, is that the EU has also been making noises that it might support a local chip maker might find somebody a european company and there's plenty of technology companies in europe that could you know with the same sort of support suddenly become a chip maker uh, the thing to remember here is that most of the actual machines particularly the uh, uh, ultraviolet lithography machines are all european they're particularly dutch right and it wouldn't take much to say well why don't you just keep them in europe and we'll give you some free land we'll give you some and then all of a sudden you've got a chip maker in europe that's competing with Intel. So I think there's a lot of stuff happening here. You know, there's nothing a technology company, an American technology company loves than free money, especially government money from some taxpayer somewhere, uh, as we know, like SpaceX and so forth. Um, and so I think there's a lot of things going on here, but it's a bit of a wishy-washy headline. It looks really great, but there's actually not much substance behind it all when I actually dug into it. Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. Intel, one sense is an opportunity because there's, I think, a growing sense, a growing feeling of anxiety in Western countries about just how much we're dependent on semiconductors and how much of that 
actual manufacturing capacity happens in Asia, where we don't have any geopolitical influence. And so that's concerning. Mm. Uh, so, you know, home growing, some of that may make people feel a little better. So Intel can, you know, sort of wave that flag and, and use it to extract uh, subsidies, whatever tax breaks uh, from European countries. Uh, there's also a chip shortage. So we just frankly need more of them. It's affecting all kinds of sectors, including the automotive sector. And so there's a second yeah. opportunity there. Uh, Intel can sort of one to that pressure and maybe squeeze something out of a, a government. Yeah. And just to give you a sense of scale, uh, TSMC is likely to spend $100 billion over the next three years to grow its capacity. Mm -hmm. And Intel in Europe says we'll spend $95 billion, maybe, if, over 10 years. Over 10 years, right? right? Let's just compare those headlines, right? So <laughs> that'll give, yeah. Uh, Intel has, of course, committed to build a 20 billion to building uh, chip facilities in the US. Uh, that's already been committed. That was something that was done some years ago, and they're boosting those. And I think they're probably accelerating the build of those plants. We've talked about them in previous episodes. Um, but honestly, Intel is just not spending enough money to keep up. And the general consensus seems to be from the analyst community and the technology analysts is that they are so far behind that at best they can do is is uh, do what they can, but it's not enough. TSMC is just spending way more money than them and demonstrating that they can do it right the first time, not without failing. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. Another issue to consider is that, you know, Chip manufacturing takes up a lot of resources, power, uh, water. These are both scarce resources now. They produce a lot of carbon. They produce toxic waste. Uh, so you've got competing interests from countries that want to bring some chip manufacturing home in that it sort of goes against other initiatives they have around global warming and preserving scarce resources and so on. So an interesting tension. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that resolves. At the end of the day, when you're spending tens of billions of dollars, it's a political thing. Yeah. It just becomes inherently <laughs> political. It will, yes. You know, it's like uh, somebody wants to buy arm. Um, uh, the NVIDIA wants to buy ARM for $25 billion or something like that from the UK. It becomes political when those sorts of numbers get tossed around. They actually affect economies, countries' economies, and so politics gets involved. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read about it for yourself. We'll move on. Uh, Facebook has shared a highly detailed post about a revamp of its data center designs. They're talking about new switch hardware, a new fabric design, why it went with 100 gig instead of 400 gig optics, and a partnership with Arista Networks. There was a, a lot to go over in this post, Greg. Yeah, it was a really interesting post, actually. They actually put quite a bit of information in there. But there was a couple of things that I took away is, um, by all means, go and read it. The link is in the, in the show notes. But the first thing was, that's fine for Facebook. This is not a design that anybody in the real world, I think, is going to use. Because they're talking about uh, the reason that the, the primary drive behind this particular design is that they need to have six buildings in a single site operating as a single network fabric. Right. So well, I'm not too sure how many uh, enterprises out there actually have six data centers that they need to bond together into a single unified system. But uh, if you do, you should read this place very closely. Otherwise, it's sort of more of an academic type of thing. Uh, they did make a lot of talk about power and how much power is a problem for them. And right. a big thing for them was the reduction, 50% reduction in power in the network, which was interesting, not something we've historically seen in networking because the power consumption of networking was such a small fraction of the overall that they never really optimized for it, I felt. 
Yeah, a couple of things that jumped out me jumped out to me in that regard is that they call power one of their physical constraints. So a building might have more actual physical space, but it's only got you know 100 megawatts of power. That's it. So you could double the amount of uh, switches you can bring in, but if you can't power them, it doesn't matter. So what they had to do was design a new switch that they say uses 50% less power, so they can expand into the you know work within the con- the constraints of the power supply they have. Hmm. What I think it means is that you, when you're the big cloud companies are starting to optimize into the corner conditions. Mm-hmm. So up until now is they've been able to optimize servers and optimize for VM deployments and get the, you know, proof the power consumption, better power supplies in the servers gets a result. And now they're starting to get that last little bit. And so the network is one of those that starting, do you know, like they, they've started with the easy wins and now they're getting to the much harder wins uh, in terms of getting efficiency. The other thing that I noticed there was, and you alluded to it in the intro was that, they aren't going 400 gigs. And they actually say here, we had concerns about the availability of 400 gig optics at scale and the risk of adopting such leading tech edge technology at early stages. Right. Now we've seen all of the incumbent networking vendors make acquisitions in the 400 gig optics for, uh, companies so that they can make their own. And they're not, they'll be pretty disappointed that Facebook has basically said, not happy with 400 gig. Maybe they're not happy with the price, but what they're actually saying is our oh, availability. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, right. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could see it, it comes clearly through in the post that Facebook is concerned that 400 gig isn't quite ready or may not be available at the capacity demands they have. You know, if they're going to build 10,000 switches, they want to make sure all those components are available, uh, including redundance. So they actually very ex- specifically worked around a design where they could leverage 100 gig optics. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, well, and they say we could increase the link speeds moving to 400 gig. Chasing the latest optics, though, would require 800 or 1600 gig optics in another two to three years. This clearly isn't viable given that even now 400 gig opticals are not available at the scales we need. Uh, I think what they're alluding to there is that the current manufacturing of 400 gig modules is only in very small numbers. Now, that is not what Cisco and Juniper and other companies in that space are telling us. They're out there making a big hoo-ha about 400 gig and saying how it's going to be the magical broom that's going to carry them to profitability and a new generation of profits, at least when they're talking to shareholders, at least. Um, so this is not a signal. I, don't, I wonder how many analysts will actually pick up on this and start to question the reality of it. But of course, the real signature piece on here is that Arista, is they're co-sourcing with Arista. Uh, right down the very bottom of the post. Did you notice that? It was right at the very bottom. They did tuck that uh, in at the end. Yeah. Joint development with Arista Networks. Uh, the actual switch, so Facebook is custom designing its own switch hardware. And it talks a lot in this post about how it came up with the design. Uh, and they have a thing called a mini pack, which actually allows them to have optical switching modules so that you can have. Uh, and it was originally intended to be a 128 by 100 gig switch as the building block. And they decided to have two sources. So that for a second source, they talk, turned to longtime partner Arista Networks. Now, if you don't think that Arista is not going to be out there gloating about that, <laughs> I think every briefing from Arista from now on will have, oh, yes, we co-sourced with Facebook. We partnered with Facebook. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. If I was Arista, I'd be shouting it to the rooftops. Uh, I'd be running around in the streets carrying mm. a big banner saying, Facebook chose us to co-partner as one of their sources. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great feather in the cap for Arista. It is. It is. And it's also interesting that Facebook is effectively saying that it's not entirely happy with its Chinese supply chain. 
So in the past, they've always dealt with Edgecore or, you know, one of those manufacturers, Edgecore and Celestica, they call out in the post for our earlier switches. Mm -hmm. And the suggestion would be is that perhaps that hasn't gone as well. Like why partner with Arista? But then you say, then I thought, well, maybe the supply chain. Does Arista have better buying arrangements than Facebook? Does Arista have better assembly or better manufacturers? Or does is Facebook... You know, it seems odd to me after years and years of buying switches directly from Edgecore and Celestica after specifying this is exactly what we want, that they would then go to Arista. But then you also think like Arista is contributing this specification for the Arista 738X4 to the open compute networking project. Right. So, you know, there's a whole bunch going on there. I wish I could get more going on and what's actually happening inside. What's what's the reason for second sourcing here? It doesn't that doesn't make sense or not immediately obvious? I mean, they're what they say in the post essentially is just belt and suspenders. You know, we want to have a, a not not a backup, but just a second source, just because it makes us feel better. There may be other geopolitical implications or supply chain implications in there, but that didn't come out on the post. Um, either way, it yeah. works out great for Arista. Yeah, I, I kind of seems a bit odd. Like, you know, is Arista suddenly doing assembly in the USA? Is there some sort of political situation where giving jobs, you know, placing all? It just seems a bit odd. Yeah, um, there'd be the, something in. The downside for Arista is that Facebook is also very clear that it's running its own OS, the FBOS uh, network OS. Um, you can run EOS on this switch that Arista is building for Facebook, but Facebook isn't using EOS; they're running FBOS. Sure. So that, yeah, and of course, that's not such a win. They're not using Arista's EOS. They're using their own software and they continue to innovate around that software. So they're fairly happy with it. Anyway, the article's a good read. Um, it gives you a lot of insights into some of the decision-making that vendors must go into when they make switches and decide what they're going to build and how they build it. And, and Facebook's been quite transparent here. Um, so as long as you don't mind being tracked by Facebook, engineering's, the engineering blog on Facebook is, has got the post. Yeah, the link's in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, Netgear has released patches for three major security vulnerabilities that affect 20 different models of its switches. Netgear, quote, strongly recommends, unquote, the customers download the firmware updates right away. The vulnerabilities include an authentication bypass that would let a remote attacker get full control of the device. The vulnerabilities were discovered by an independent researcher. Yeah, not much to say here. Netgear's had a long history of not being safe, not being secure, and also not fixing the problems, which I think is the bigger problem here. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see. But I think if you were recommending to a customer to you know buy Netgear because it'll do or whatever, maybe you shouldn't based on the fact that they have a proven history of not really taking security seriously and uh, making it quite difficult to get patches and updates into their devices. I thought it was funny that Netgear's security advisory is titled security advisory for multiple vulnerabilities on some smart switches. And then you click on the link and it's 20. That's not some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're pretty horrendous too. Apparently it's really easy to compromise them. And if you can get into the Netgear switch, you can actually then pivot into the entire network. So it's a whole thing of its own. Yeah. It is. Yes. Yeah, so we've got a link. Uh, there's a good article in threat post about it. There's also a link to the researcher, uh, and uh, the research he did to find the vulnerabilities as long, along with the security advisory, if you want to check it out. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from Nokia. Did you know that Nokia has over 1.1 million routers deployed and power some of the largest interconnection networks, including Equinix and DECIX? 
Recently, Nokia launched its data center fabric solution, building on over 20 years of IP know-how and expertise. And this DC fabric solution comprises SR Linux. This is a new, open, extensible, resilient network operating system. It's based on standard Linux and uses Nokia's field-proven protocol stacks and provides best-in-class streaming telemetry. There are also interconnect routers. This is a portfolio of LeafSpine and SuperSpine platforms using Merchant Silicon. And the Fabric Services Platform. This is a declarative intent-based automation and operations toolkit for your day one through day two plus operations. The Fabric Services Platform uses Kubernetes and a distributed microservices approach. So you get a true cloud-native automation and operations platform. There are certified design templates and a digital sandbox to emulate the data center fabric so operators can automate their data center networks at scale and speed with confidence. You can check out the data center fabric solution at nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. That's nokia.com slash networks slash DC dash fabric. Back to the news. Uh, last month, Comcast Business announced it was acquiring managed services provider Massagy for an undisclosed amount. Massagy offers managed SD-WAN, unified communications as a service, call center as a service, and managed security. Massagy has about 1,400 customers around the world. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting in a bunch of different ways. The way to look at Messagey, or at least how I see Messagey in my, in my interpretation, is they're like a multi-vendor MPLS provider. And what they did a few years ago is they invested heavily in the software operation of that MPLS provisioning network. And the basic idea is that most customers don't actually want to buy MPLS overlays from different vendors and then stitch them together themselves, building an MPLS fabric that, you know, you takes this in the US and this provider in the Southern US and this in Australia and, and put it all together, much easier to pay somebody else to provide the bandwidth for you. Uh, but what they did, which was unique, is instead of doing static provisioning, they started to do a lot of software provisioning and accelerate the performance. And they were able to um, get a position in that. They did a big deal about that being SD-WAN. That's not SD-WAN to me. Your ability to software provision legacy MPLS circuits is not SD-WAN at all. To me, SD-WAN is where is right out at the edge of the network, where you have low-cost devices using whatever bandwidth is available to radically change your ROI infrastructure. So yeah, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I guess I don't know much about Massergy and its approach to SD-WAN, but they are definitely calling themselves managed SD-WAN. So I guess mm. we can quibble about how you define that. Yeah, it is an interesting one. I think SD-WAN has to be that idea that you are going to be you know, that edge and you don't care whether it's MPLS, whereas Massergy always wanted to keep selling you their MPLS circuits. And I didn't want to have anything to do with their MPLS circuits. I wanted to be able to use internet or MPLS or broadband or whatever, whatever makes sense, satellite. Right. Uh, so Comcast. Choose. Yeah. Yeah. So I see this as a perfect business for Comcast business. Comcast is obviously supplying legacy services to its customers. It would not be willingly selling an SD-WAN edge because that would undermine its business model of selling its bandwidth because people would switch from, you know, dedicated business circuits to just consumer grade type stuff. And then it would be a different thing. Um, yeah. So we'll see where it is. Yeah. I also see this as an opportunity for Comcast business to start moving up the customer food chain. I think primarily they've been working with small and medium sized businesses. Now they can go up into larger enterprises and maybe start competing against folks like Verizon and AT&T and manage services for larger customers. Yeah. And that where it makes sense. So I sort of see this as a message as like a software operated legacy MPLS. And we've seen that sort of stuff fairly standardized. There's a number of other customers in that space. Um, Aviatrix, Packet Fabric are sort of doing that. Let's make MPLS better. It's, they're not really changing it. Whereas in the other extreme is companies like Alkira and Anuda who are doing much more uh, an NFV type of an approach, which is a radically different type of thing. So 
it'll be interesting to see how they decide what to do there. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to read more. Uh, moving on, there's a new report highlighting the rise of government shutdowns of the local internet, growing from just a few shutdowns in 2012 to 213 by 2019. And they're defining shutdowns as ranging from blocking particular types of services like social media to full takedowns, such as removing BGP routes so that the country is essentially cut off from the broader global internet. Yeah. So the reason for flagging this is that there are certain countries in the world for which um, shutting off the internet is a political move. They say it's a society, protect society, or uh, in some cases they say it's to protect, protect school exams. So they shut off the internet so that students don't cheat or something. There's a whole bunch of excuses. Uh, I'm never quite sure whether they're real or not. Um, you, you know, you make the decision how you feel about it. Uh, but what's interesting about these is that I think if you're a network architect and somebody who's provisioning a global WAN, you should know that this is something that just happens. Uh, and when governments shut off the internet to entire countries, there's not a lot you can do. And if your business depends on email or IP telephony, all of that will cease and you have to plan that in. So you kind of need to know that um, what's happening here. And this is a project, it's jigsaw.google.com. And there's an article here about what shutdowns are happening and what countries. And if you happen to be working in those countries now, it has to be said that these are countries that maybe most people wouldn't be working in, Egypt, Tunisia, Guinea, places like that. But if you are working in those types of countries, then maybe you should know about that uh, and then consider a service like Thousand Eyes or Deepfield or somebody like that who's actually monitoring the internet and they can tell you if services in those countries have gone down. Right, and also maybe provide a little bit more insight into why as opposed to, oh, suddenly I can't reach, uh, you know, Tunisia, is that because something broke or because it was deliberately taken offline? You can save yourself a lot of time if you're actually, one, aware that this is going could happen and two, have uh, some visibility into why. Yeah, it's pretty good if you can say to the say to your boss, he says, well, why is the office in so-and-so down? And you can say, because the government there shut it off. Right. <laughs> you look pretty you good go at home. that point, right? That's not, I don't know, the internet's down. It looks pretty good if you can say, like, the government there shut down the entire you know, type thing. The same thing applies to Russia, for example. And at any time, Russia may or may not actually throttle the internet. They may block certain IP addresses and things like that. So I just wanted to flag that whole discussion topic. It's not something that we really want to cover in the network break, but I wanted to go and have a read of this website and get some and get your brain thinking about how this might impact your designs if it's relevant to you. Yeah. All right. Our last story for the day, the social networking app House Party is being shut down. According to the app creators, House Party let people set up ad hoc video chats. Uh, it's being removed from app stores and will cease working in October. House Party was acquired by Epic Games, which makes the Fortnite game back in 2019 for $35 million and was sort of tied into Fortnite, but also was used just for uh, video social media and now is being uh, shut down. Yeah. So House Party was, um, you know, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when we were all shut into our houses, a lot of people turned to Zoom and WebEx and Teams to try and set up events. And they didn't really have that feeling. People could sort of make them work if they were committed to it, if you know what I'm saying. But they were the, the metaphor behind Zoom and, and, and those types of traditional corporate ones is the, the, a theatre. Somebody's on stage and everybody else is listening. But if you're trying to get a, a social interaction going or a discussion between a group of people, maybe you want to have five or six people chatting together like you do around a table, then you need to have a much more of a lounge type design metaphor. And House Party was an attempt to create a chat room style thing, which let everybody chat as if they were all together. And it was very popular for people to 
um, you know, have a drink and get together and socialize and stuff like that. But uh, apparently the product is not particularly viable. And so it's actually being shut down, which is disappointing because we're sort of left behind with the, the traditional tools that we know aren't working so well for us. So Zoom and Teams and those types of things are available, but they don't work so well. Well, they the blog hinted that something new would be coming along. So House Party may be shut down, but it may uh, turn mm. into something new later down the line. We'll have to wait and see because they didn't really give any hints other than that something else is in the works uh, to replace House Party. But I take your point. You know, we've talked a lot about virtual conferences and often how terrible they are. And we need someone to sort of reimagine a new format that makes the virtual experience uh, at least as good as being there in person. And I don't know that anyone has really cracked that nut yet. Yeah. And, I, you know, virtual conferences software is still pretty poor. They're still working on the metaphor that you can have booths and <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Right. It's just like a bad copy of the real life instead of figuring out a way to use the medium to its best advantages. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking about house party is house party a sign that a more collaborative, open, dynamic, walk the corridors type of thing doesn't work either for the medium. So I don't know, I, you know, the question still remains is how do, how do practitioners, how do people who are working for companies, how do they find new products, new trends and get information, right? There's only so many web pages you can read and there's so many serendipitous discussions that you can s- suddenly have. And, and I think that problem, like I could go to a conference and walk around and see products I'd never seen before. Uh-huh. And that was useful, knowing what was in the industry, like, you know, oh, this company's released a new switch. I didn't realize that. Or, you know, here's a new product category I've never seen before. And is this something that's relevant to me? And that was what I think is missing. It's not conferences that are missing. It's that process of discovering new trends, discovering new products and discovering mm-hmm. information that relates to them. And we haven't yet solved that. I think podcasting, like maybe Network Break and, and Packet Pushes Network is one way to do that. YouTube, obviously. And then you can have some serendipity on Twitter and LinkedIn, but it's, they're not, some of those aren't very time efficient and they, you have to sift through a lot of dross before you get to the things that are interesting. If that makes sense. There's never any dross on Network Break. <laughs> well, we try not to. Yeah. Don't know how well we're doing, but we try not to. There is, yes, I know. It's yeah. inevitable. We're humans, but just anyway, kidding. yeah. Just some some random speculation to close out the show because it's uh it's an interesting thought about how we get information to you, the listener, and what we select, right? And of course, if you've ever got any suggestions or advice, you can always send it to us. Send us your follow up to packetpushes.net slash fu. We listen and we always try and bring it back onto the show and discuss it out in the open as best we can. We try and close that loop. Podcasts are inherently a uh, we talk and you listen, but we try and get your feedback and hear what you have to say and we use it to modify our behavior and our perceptions. Yeah, so hit us up, packetpushes.net slash fu if you have comments on this house party or other tools you're using to find people and information you find helpful, uh, or if we said anything you disagree with or want to correct us on, always happy to get your feedback. All right, that does wrap it up. Uh, we don't have a tech bite today. So Greg, where can folks find you online? Uh, you can probably find me on Twitter. I'm actually uh, getting quite active and being on Twitter still. Uh, the situation there is that I am very much trying to just put out information that's relevant to people rather than uh, put out too much off topic type stuff and give you something that's meaningful. So maybe follow me on Twitter is at ethereal mind. Yeah. I'm Drew Conner Murray. I'm on Twitter at drew underscore CM also blogging at packetpushers.net. 
Thanks to our sponsor, Nokia, for uh, being a sponsor. And thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, check out PacketPushers.net. We've got a lot more nerdy content for you. And always remember that too much networking would never be enough.